This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Avidal. My guest today is Catherine Thomas, who is an associate professor at the London School of Economics. Today we're going to talk about her paper, Who Benefits from Online Gig Economy Platforms, joined with Christopher Stanton. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jordi. So the paper is called Who Benefits from Online Gig Economy Platforms. So these are platforms like Uber, Airbnb, etc. Before we go into the actual platform that you study, I was wondering if you could tell us about why it is important to ask this question. So one presumption of economists or of general fans of capitalism is that if there is a new market and parties in this market willingly participate, it must be that they are all benefiting. Why would you want to ask a question that presumes that potentially the answer is only the employers or only the workers? Good question. We're, we're asking the research question in our paper because we want to understand really in quite some detail how these platforms work. We want to know why it is that the participants on both sides of the market are taking part and what are the sources of the gains of trade and then how are those gains from trade distributed. The reason why we think it's an interesting question is that recently it has been attracting a lot of regulatory attention from policymakers. Uh, there is a sense that the supply side is uh, very different in these kind of labor markets than in traditional offline labor markets in, in two particular ways. Uh, first of all, on the upside, there is a lot of flexibility for people providing labor services in these, uh, in these settings in that they can perhaps uh, choose their own working hours, set their own uh, terms to uh, varying degrees. But the flip side of that, of course, is the lack of stability and a rather potentially unpredictable income stream. So uh, when we're thinking about the, the workforce in platforms, uh, these, this sort of trade-off is something that's been focus of much uh, policy debate. What we uh, hope to bring to the debate is understanding how these characteristics of flexibility and uh, the ability to hire by the task, uh, which is another characteristic of these markets, what that means on the demand side, uh, what that means for the overall size of the market and the way in which the potential buyers of labour services in these markets um, operate. As you say, who benefits? The word benefit already hints at the fact that you are going to calculate some type of surplus or welfare. Uh, this is incredibly brave. Like one rule that I have for my own papers is never come anywhere close to welfare because that's essentially a quagmire that you get into. I would like you to first uh, explain what this surplus or welfare means in the simplest possible terms so that everybody can understand it. And to do that, why don't you take us through the easiest possible graph in economics, which is like a supply and demand graph on the quantities on the x-axis, prices, or in this case, wages on the y-axis, negative slope demand curve, a positive slope supply curve. What does surplus mean there? If you had that picture in a piece of paper in front of you, how will you calculate the surplus? Okay, before I do that, let me just um, establish a few facts about how the typical transaction works in this market. So we know, try to be very clear what I mean by demand and, and what I mean by supply. Um, so the type of platforms that we're thinking about in this context are online labor markets, which are markets where um, production or work is typically in order to produce an output that can be electronically delivered and the work is remote and uh, everything happens online, essentially all of the communication and all of the delivery of the work. Most of the jobs are in the form of tasks, so they'll have a particular length. The contract will be related to a particular output. On the demand side, we've got potential buyers of labor services who are um, often in uh, high-wage countries. I should have said that this is, these are global markets typically. And a potential um, buyer of labor services can create a profile on the platform, post a job. It's, it's quite a straightforward process. Describe what they want to be done, how long it will take, <clears throat> and um, sort of sit back and wait. And then they receive um, applications 
from uh, workers on the platform who have seen the job posting, would like to apply for this job, have already established their own provider, work provider profiles on the platform. When they're applying for a particular job, um, importantly, in this particular these particular settings, they also choose the hourly wage at which they are willing to work on this particular job. So that's a different feature about online markets than other platforms such as um, Uber and Lyft that you mentioned earlier. They These uh, workers are responsible for setting their own wages, uh, hourly wages. Then having collected a set of applications, the uh, potential buyer looks through the set of applications, can perhaps communicate with a subset or not, and then chooses whom, if anyone, to hire for the job. At that point, uh, if they choose to hire somebody, a contract can be established, work takes place, work is delivered electronically, payments are made all all via the platforms. Now, Back to your simple diagram. So we're thinking of the demand as a um, downward sloping uh, relationship between the hourly cost of getting work done and the quantity of hours that a buyer might seek to fill on any one opening. On the supply side, we have each individual provider who is uh, willing to work a certain number of hours at a certain hourly wage, and we conceive of that as as potentially um, upward sloping. Now, uh, when a hire takes place, the equilibrium price is the uh, hourly wage between that is paid by the buyer to the uh, worker, net of a a 10% fee to the platform. So when we're thinking about surplus, surplus for the supply side exists whenever that hourly wage that's agreed is above the marginal cost of that worker who is willing to uh, supply labour. And that's one of the objectives of the paper is to estimate the markups that the workers include in their bids in in equilibrium. Just to fast forward to the results, we find that the workers who are hired do have a positive markup um, over their marginal cost. So when we think about the surplus, it's uh, in the platform as a whole for the supply side, we aggregate up the uh, markup, hourly markup, or percentage markup per hour, multiplied by the number of hours, multiplied by the uh, total number of uh, jobs that are filled on the platform. On the demand side, the surplus is the difference between the willingness to pay of the buyer for these labor services and the price at which they contract with the um, uh, provider. So that is the uh, area between the uh, demand curve and uh, above the the price, which is the the hourly wage. So we find that integrate out uh, that area, sum it up over all of the buyers who are hiring on this platform and call that the uh, buyer surplus. Let me say it the way that I was thinking about it. There is a demand curve and that captures how much the employer will be willing to buy at each of the prices or wages. Yes. It's downward sloping. Now, the employer only has to pay a certain wage. Yes. Now, the area below the demand curve, but above that certain wage, that's like typically a triangle that we calculate in Economics 101. This triangle is like the integral of all the area, you know, below and above. That's the way that you calculate the surplus in Economics 101. I was wanting to make that point because one thing that is critical here is that obviously the shape of the demand curve is going to be really critical. That is, if the demand curve is very flat or very elastic, uh, that area, that triangle is going to be really small. If the demand curve is very steep or very inelastic, that triangle is going to be enormous because it's going to come from the infinite uh, at the very, very top of the graph, right? So this implies that calculating the surplus, calculating the welfare requires, or the critical component in there is calculating these elasticities. Calculating the surplus and calculating the elasticities, they are not exactly the same. There is like some aggregation across different types of employers or whatever, but it's you know, the main challenge is going to be that one. Exactly right. Yes, that is that is what we set out to do in our um, structural model of this marketplace that we look at. So you have already told us about this actual uh, platform that you study. I don't know if you can reveal the name of the company. Um, I'd, I'd rather not. It's one of the largest uh, online global uh 
labor markets. There are um, uh, several several of them. This is obviously, as you anticipated, a very different setting from the one of other type of gig economy platforms that the casual observer will be more familiar with. Because, for instance, for Uber or for uh, food delivery, the workers do not submit these wage bills. Uh, they are price takers and there is some type of uh, algorithm uh, by the platform itself that sets the prices. So if you were to do this type of calculation for these other platforms, the mechanics will be different. The demand side might not necessarily uh, be so different, but the supply side would definitely be different. So we have a model where bidders set their prices strategically when applying for a job, choosing their optimal markup over their marginal costs, which actually we see in the de- even in the raw data can vary quite a bit for an individual provider who's applying for multiple jobs over the course of a month. You have here, uh, you have described how the demand works. Uh, there are going to be different employers of different types. They all have uh, their demand, that is the, the willingness to hire a worker for a particular wage at a particular price and so on. You have described a little bit about how these workers decide on their wages or not. What other elements are important, not in how this market works in practice, but that you are going to incorporate in your model? Okay. I I should first of all say that my co-author, Chris, and I have um, been working with this great data set from this particular market for quite a while. And we'd observed quite a few interesting features about, in particular, uh, the demand side in the process of writing a couple of uh, other papers about this uh, setting. And there were aspects of the uh, just the dis- descriptive statistics that we wanted to be really sure to uh, capture in our in our model because they seem to be unusual features of this of this particular labor market. And let me just explain that what we can see in our data is how a particular potential buyer, um, how they evolve over time on this particular platform. So we see them when they first arrive, whether or not when they um, by arrive, I mean, when they first post a job, what happens on that job, we see them come back or not come back. We see them sort of over time posting multiple jobs. And what we saw is that their behavior in terms of the actions and the choices that they make, first of all, very heterogeneous across different buyers in terms of uh, behavior, uh, frequency of, of posting jobs, obviously the type of job and that kind of thing. But we also saw quite a lot of within buyer heterogeneity in that once a given buyer has hired once and returns, they tend to post jobs more often and also um, hire on those jobs uh, more often. It seemed that there's an element of getting to know this market, getting a a foot in the door. And there's a a subset of buyers for whom this platform works really well. And they seem to discover that through their early experience on the platform and end up coming back often and uh, hiring a lot of people and uh, creating a large amount of value. In, the, in these particular platforms. So in terms of uh, our demand side, we wanted to capture some, so, you know, really allow the model to tell us how important these features were. So on the demand side, we have a sort of nested uh, setup where conditional on having posted a particular job, we first model the potential hirers um, hiring probability of each applicant that they've received as a function of the characteristics of the applicant. Things like what their experience has been both on the platform and off, what their feedback score has been if they've worked on the platform before, which is important, their location, their education. We we, we see a lot of information about uh, each of these um, applicants. We also have another feature of the provider's application, which is the order which they arrive, uh, which turns out to be interesting and and, uh, important in that, you know, if they're one of the early applicants to the job, it really does affect the probability that they're hired in a positive way. So the early applicants are more likely to be hired and obviously their wage bid. So those are the the characteristics of the applicant that we um, observe in the hiring probability. And we also wanted to allow the model to be flexible enough to tell 
tell us something about the heterogeneous buyers who show up. And so we have a, a, a parameter that captures the buyer's average preference or average value for hiring anybody on the site relative to hiring off the platform or, or not hiring. And we allow that parameter to uh, vary across buyers and we la- allow the data to tell us what the uh, nature of the distribution of that uh, buyer type heterogeneity is. We have characteristics of the job itself, what it's in, how long it is, that kind of conditional on having posted such a job, received such a set of applications. We model the hiring decision as a discrete choice because the employer hires at most one person for that job. And we use the information that we've got on the hiring decisions to estimate the parameters of that that hiring probability uh, decision. So we we are able to um, estimate how much buyers of different types value particular applicant characteristics and uh, so on. The second part of the model is the uh, supply side. So this, because we feel and we see in the data a lot of um, variation in the hourly bids, even within quite a short period of time for the same worker who's applying for different jobs, we wanted to allow them to bid strategically and include these optimal markups. So we we allow them to submit a bids which are an optimal markup over their marginal cost based on their perceived perceived semi-elasticity of the of the demand that they're facing. You said the perceived semi-elasticity. So there are two ways to think about this. Okay. So one way is there's an infinite pool of workers they are all more or less the same. The, war, the, the buyer essentially doesn't care who they are hiring and they're going to go for the lowest bid, okay? The other possibility is that there is like some type of like imperfect competition or monopolistic competition. That is, I want to hire somebody whose name starts with the same initial as my name. So I have, for some irrational reason, perhaps a preference for this, and, and therefore, the worker is thinking, well, given that there are these crazy employers there who want to hire, you know, somebody starting with J or with A or whatever, I'm going to put a B that is slightly higher than my opportunity cost or my marginal cost. And that way, you know, because that's not going to decrease infinitely the likelihood that I'm hired, I'm going to get in expectation a little bit of, a, of an additional welfare there or a markup. You are saying that this market works in the second way rather than in the first way. Well, we want the model to tell us the extent to which it resembles the the second version versus rather than the first version. But you are also saying that a potential way in which this... I gave you like a, a very strange example of this type of preference, but you are saying that that at least anecdotically, the primary reason as to why workers are able to get this type of markup is that they ap- that they apply faster. No, there, there may be other sources, other sources of differentiation. That is that is true. Uh, the example that you gave would, I'm afraid, be in the error term. We we haven't allowed that kind of. We have not estimated the extent of preference for matching uh, first name initial. Um, but for the of course. <laughs> but the characteristics that we think are relevant for the hiring decision we've tried to um, estimate explicitly. Let me also just um, add that in each of the applications, each of the workers has a chance to write a cover letter and to explain why they might be a particularly good fit for this job. So the fact that there is some source of differentiation in addition to the application order um, seems reasonable um, to us. Okay. So you were telling us about the other elements that are left. So you have the workers now, they have different characteristics. They're going to submit the wages with markups. So let me just recap. We've got the buyer's hiring decision conditional on posting a job. We estimate the parameters of that uh, process. We um, allow the providers to be making an optimal bid conditional on their costs and uh, their their perception about what the demand for their services will be on that particular job. The third thing moves on to the dynamics. We wanted to capture this feature that experience shapes the frequency with which buyers post jobs. So we have a reduced form um, arrival process where we allow the estimate the um, probability that a buyer posts a job in a particular month. And we allow that probability to be a, a sort of constant probability plus a parameter that reflects the buyer's experience, namely have they hired on the market before or not. 
And then a third element, which turns out to be quite important, which is the wage bids that they've received in the past on the platform. Have they received, on average, um, wage bids that seem to be very good value, conditional on the applications that they've seen? Or have they received wage bids from a set of workers that seem to be perhaps not good value relative to the typical applicants uh, for jobs on the, on the, on the platform? And these, these parameters of the arrival process, the, um, you know, the, the average propensity to return, the extent to which that propensity differs with buyer experience, and the sensitivity of the return rate, sorry, the return frequency to wage, wages that they've received in the past are all parameters that we estimate um, in the model. So I have never really done this type of like structural um equation type of paper so don't I'm, I'm really not familiar with the details about how this works in practice but one way to think about this that i understand is that this is like a system of equations right every one of these types of participants in the market the demand side the supply side then the future demand side they are all captured by some type of equation there are some unknown parameters in there so if we were to reduce it to just supply and demand, it's it's obvious that you cannot estimate these things with a, like a standard regression, let's say an OLS regression, even though in your case, the decisions are, are discrete or not. Because, you, you know, going back to the uh, setup that I was trying to introduce at the beginning of the Economics 101, if you have a demand curve and then you have that the wages are randomly generated, then it will be easy with, you know, wages that are lower and then you can observe the quantity, wages that are higher, that you can also observe the quantity. Eventually, after sufficient randomly generated wages, you can estimate the whole shape of the demand curve. But here you're saying the wages are precisely not generated randomly because they are generated strategically because the perceived elasticity from the supply side is what is generating, um, you know, these, these wage bits. This implies that you are going to have or you are going to use specifically to start with some instruments to estimate this elasticity of demand. What are these instruments? Yeah, thank you. That's an important part of the uh, estimation process. So um, having said that we observe a huge amount of information about the um, uh, applica each of these applications, obviously we still have the uh, potential in in endogeneity problem that there is something unobserved to us that's important to the um uh, to the buyers, and the wage bids are endogenous to to that. And we we as as you've uh, said, the responsiveness of the hiring decision and indeed the hiring uh, sorry the job posting to the wage bids received is a really important part of the um, of the model. So we we want to be really careful about how we deal with that endogeneity problem. Um, what we've done is used uh, two instrumental variables that create arguably, uh, or at least we argue, um, exogenous variation in the wage bids on particular jobs, allowing us to trace out what that uh, demand function looks like. So let me talk about the, the first one. The first one is, uh, is, 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 is pretty interesting, uh, we think. I mentioned earlier that um, the majority of buyers in this market are in high income countries. Um, a large fraction, perhaps around uh, a slight majority of the uh, workers applying for jobs are in lower income countries. The most frequently observed countries are India and Philippines, uh, for instance. This gives us uh, an interesting source of variation because of a feature of the platform that all of the wage bids come in in US dollars. So an individual provider applying for a job has to choose an hourly US dollar figure for which they are willing to work. We imagine that figure, as I've mentioned, to be potentially an optimal markup over their marginal cost. And we think that their marginal cost of supplying labor to this platform is denominated in the currency in their home environment. So if we think that at least part of their outside option is coming from an alternative source of work in their local labor market, in that local labor market, they will be paid in the local currency. Therefore, exogenous 
exchange rate movements between their local currency and the dollar change in dollar terms their marginal cost of supplying labor to the platform because it changes the opportunity cost of uh, doing this global um, online work. And we see that this um, instrument of the exchange rate actually really does um, work in terms of explaining variation in the wage bids over time. So, for instance, let's say that the um, Indian rupee appreciates against the um, dollar, then on average, wage bids from workers in India will increase. I can see this thing of the Indian rupee versus the dollar appreciating. That means that the company in the U.S. hiring workers from India is going to have to pay more because the wage bids have increased in dollars, though they may be unchanged in rupees. And therefore, it becomes more attractive to now hire American workers offline or something. Wouldn't you still be able to use this instrument when the Indian rupee appreciates relative to the dollar, but the Filipino currency does not? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So we we want to look so at... It works for both. Yes, yes. Against uh, all, all of the workers, against all of the other applicants, potentially from many different countries in their um, uh, applicant pool for a particular job. Now, the thing is with that instrument, as as, as nice as it is um, for workers who live in countries where the currency is not the US dollar or is not pegged to the US dollar, um, and and helps us understand the degree of substitutability between uh, workers from different countries, it's a bit problematic for workers, say, in the US. Uh, We can see, you know, they change in the sort of relative price relative to other workers uh, in different countries. But we want to also be able to think about how their sort of choices between working on the platform versus the outside option. So we also use a second instrument, which is um, uh, an instrument that's intended to capture the degree of competitiveness in similar jobs in in the at the same time. So we we take um, the set of all job postings that are in the uh, similar enough uh, job category that week or that month, and we look at the average number of applicants. And there's variation in the average number of applicants. We argue for plausibly exogenous reasons over time, and uh, we see that the degree of competitiveness on similar jobs also affects the um, bid levels um, in US dollars for particular for, for any given job. So, so, we, so about this other instrument, let me ask you about first the need for this instrument because if if like a significant proportion of the workers are US based, then by using exchange rate you are ignoring these people. I can see that that's bad. But if the overwhelming majority of the workers are based in countries for which this first instrument of the exchange rates works. Are there really big benefits to incorporating American workers who might be like a negligible part of the supply? Um, they're not. They're not negligible. Actually, we 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 want we we have done everything with just the exchange rate instrument, but with the with both instruments, it's we we feel we have a, a better source of identification for how um, for U.S. workers applying on the platform varies relative, you know, opportunity costs for workers uh, in the U.S. on the platform. One other question that I have here is the following. There is, as I said earlier, a system of equations, a lot of unknowns, and you have two instruments for the demand, but you don't have instruments for the supply or you don't have instruments for, you know, a shock that makes a particular experience of, a, of a, an employer very successful, such that that employer is more willing to come to the market in the future. How is it possible that you manage to identify everything with just these two instruments for the demand? What we do once we've estimated the parameters of the hiring probability is make the assumption that the workers' bids are uh, containing information about the cost and the markup. Once we know Once we have our estimates of the nature of demand, we can invert that wage bid equation to separate it out from the information that we have into an estimate of the provider's cost and an estimate of their markup on a particular job. And then with that, you then go forward and see whether the employer had a particularly successful experience or not in terms of the wage bid that the employer received and therefore whether the employee wants to come back to the market? Yes. So we just, we allow their um, rate of return and the frequency with which they return to, to depend on those past wage bids. And it's it's a residualized wage bid. So it's, it's unexpectedly good or bad wage bids relative to what's going on in the market at the, at the 
time when those applications are made. So is this using also the same type of instrument that somebody happened to post a job at a time at which... Yeah, yeah. The implicit assumption is that the composition of the applicants that they've received in the past is is random. Okay, so with all this machinery that you have, what are the results uh, in terms of how do you estimate that this market looks like? Okay, um, there are three aspects to the results that we, we really want to highlight as being characteristics characteristic of this uh, particular type of labor market. The first is that these markups are, uh, are on the supply side are substantial and that on average for a worker who is hired on a particular job, we estimate that about 40% of the surplus accrues to the uh, worker. They're charging, um, on average, uh, markups of about uh, 25% over their marginal cost. And uh, those markups um, do vary with the application order. Applicants that apply early, um, you know, shortly after the job is posted, tend to set a higher markup, those that apply late. Uh, and the second thing is that our estimates of marginal cost do seem somewhat plausible in that they are are, um, to the extent they are correlated with the providers, um, uh, the GDP per capita in the provider's home country. So we see higher cost estimates coming from workers who are in higher income countries, for instance. So we, we have this set of uh, supply side estimates that allow us to calculate these, go on to calculate the surplus measures as we've uh, described. And what's also interesting about the supply side is that um, although the surplus on when you're hired is quite high, uh, the surplus on um, the expected surplus from making an application is, is relatively low because, you know, each job opening receives an average of about 30 applications. And so only one out of 30 is ever hired and often the um, employer doesn't hire. So uh, there's a long, a large fraction of providers who are making applications and not being hired, who are not getting a lot of surplus, but come back to come back to that issue later. Um, the second interesting result is that um, uh, we're able to estimate the extent to which experience matters on the demand side. So we have a parameter that tells us how the hiring probability changes once an employer has hired before. Now, that's due to two things. It's obviously due to um, selection. Only those who really like the platform tend to come back. And it's also that but there's also a treatment effect that uh, any given employer has a higher hiring probability having tried out the platform before. Um, so experience matters in terms of engagement with the platform overall on the demand side. Now, we already knew it mattered on the supply side. Actually, my co-author Chris and I have an earlier paper where we see that breaking into the market, getting the first job is the biggest challenge for the supply side, because that enables you as a worker to have some feedback, which employers really can value. But it seems that making that first hire is also important on the demand side, because it allows employers to learn how the platform works, whether it works for them, and and uh, all of the different uh, things that they could potentially do um, on the platform. The third result that we think is important is the arrival process. The frequency of posting jobs also increases once an employer, uh, once a buyer has got experience on the platform and is also sensitive to the uh, wage bids that they've received in the past. Okay, so one critical uh, conclusion that you have mentioned and that speaks to the title of the paper, is that the workers are getting a significant uh, surplus when they get a job. You uh, already mentioned that, well, they may be getting out of surplus per job, but because they apply to lots of jobs and they uh, don't get most of them, it may not be as, as easy as that. So. I want to, to introduce an, an additional reason as to why they may be getting less surplus than, than this, you know, initial like headline number that you were mentioning, which is that, that feature that you have mentioned a couple of times by which the markups that they are obtaining at least partially come with, from the fact that they are among the first responders to a job posting, okay? So you could say that in, in the Soviet Union or maybe in the, in the future Russia, once we make it to the front line uh, of the bakery after queuing for seven hours, we are getting a lot of surplus. 
out of getting that loaf of bread for which we pay nothing. Mm -hmm. But of course, from an example perspective, the surplus has dissipated from the fact that we have had to queue for seven hours. You know, This is an issue that is often mentioned with Uber, that uh, Uber says, well, our workers are getting a very high wage, but in the denominator uh, of the wage per hour calculation, they, all, they only put the, the number of hours that the uh, drivers are actually driving people, not the hours in which they are waiting for rides. And something potentially similar is happening here, which is that if in order to obtain that high surplus per job, I have to spend the whole day in front of the computer to ensure that I am among the first applicants, then my rents are dissipated from an ex-ante perspective. Yes, correct. Um, but on the on the supply side, we've, the provider's problem that we've modeled is the choice to apply. So we, we those, uh, the cost of applying are, are in there. What I meant to say is that there is an, an additional choice, which is the choice of being contemporaneously informed of the presence of, of the job posting. Ah, right? that's valuable. That is valuable, yes. And therefore... Having to be waiting dentro of the computer in order to see whether there is a job posting, that's effort as well that dissipates, you know, the rents. Uh, I see. I see. Yes, agreed. Now, you have uh, all these different findings. You do several counterfactual exercises. The first one is about the presence of regulation that is taxing this market or introducing a minimum wage in this market. How do you do this? What do you find there? Yeah. So the way that we've set up the counterfactuals kind of reflect two things. First of all, you know, these three findings that I highlighted that when in, when hired, the providers are, are doing quite well, getting, getting quite large markups. And second, that the buyer's early experiences on the platform are very important for determining how much they engage with the platform overall in terms of posting jobs. And in a setting where the early experiences of buyers are hampered in some way, you know, we can see straight away it's going to have a, a negative impact on the size of the market in a dynamic sense and therefore also reduce the total gains from trade and reduce the share of that surplus going to the providers. So then we come to the uh, current sort of uh, regulatory debate that's ongoing. Now, as far as we can tell, there is still, of course, quite a lot of uncertainty about about the nature of any new policy or, or, or labour market regulation that might come to uh, any any it's come to the gig economy in particular, come to online labour markets where workers have quite a lot of ability to set their own terms. So what we've done is a couple of counterfactuals that are a very sort of broad brush impose market-wide institutional changes to get a sense of the direction that things would go in uh, in response to these uh, market level changes. And the two that we've done are really in a, uh, an approximation, I would say, taking two ways in which traditional offline labor markets are regulated in the U.S. and applying a similar kind of uh, structure within this online market. So the first one that we do is take uh, a minimum wage of about $7 per, of $7 per hour, which is approximately uh, the US federal minimum wage at the time of our data, which is from 2008 to 2010. And we put that in the market. Why did we, is that a relevant, do we, do we actually think that's a, a relevant possibility for this particular market? No, not necessarily, but um, it shows us sort of perhaps the overall direction that things will um, go in. You know, the average wage bids in, on these markets, in these markets tend to be around, you know, $10 per hour. But obviously there's a lot of variation, especially if there's a lot of applicants from low wage countries. And there is a significant number of wage bids that, that are below that $7 uh, minimum. The second counterfactual that we do is a 10% tax on employers, which essentially just raises the cost of hiring to them, intended to mimic some of the sort of employment costs regulation in uh, traditional labor markets in the US. Now, what both of these policies do effectively is raise the hiring cost to employers. What happens in our model is that given these new regulations that are public knowledge, all of the people bidding for jobs re-optimize their bids, knowing that these new regulatory 
institutions are in place. And the buyers proceed to hire on posted jobs and post jobs in, in these new environment. So first of all, what we see in a static sense is that, you know, conditional on posting a job, the wages paid goes up, the probability of hiring goes down. But the big changes come in the number of jobs posted. So we see that the impact of uh, higher wages early on in buyers' experiences on the platform really reduce the rate at which they return, well, become experienced and return to the platform to post more jobs. So we see that the, the number of postings really shrinks. And because there are fewer postings, there are fewer hires. And because in the, the status quo, the providers are extracting surplus on any hires that are made, the smaller number of hires means a smaller overall surplus and a smaller amount of surplus to the uh, supply side. So one thing with regulation is that whenever we economists tend to do analysis about regulation and all, it's never a good thing. Like increasing the income tax, obviously it's going to disincentivize work. So that's bad. But of course, what we often don't model is that the state needs money to run things, right? So there's a benefit there as well. In your case, I could see before you were going to do the exercise that the welfare effect is was going to be negative. The question is, is this a big number or a small number, right? Yeah. That's that's kind of the let, important let, question. Let me just uh, disagree with you on that point. I, I think particularly in the case of um, empirical work on minimum wages does not always have the same conclusion that it's a, a, a bad outcome. And indeed, there are some really nice experiments in online labor markets. For example, a, a current paper by uh, John Horton at MIT runs an experiment where he imposes a $3 minimum wage in an online labor market. And it's a very carefully designed experiment whereby having posted a job, those that are the jobs that are treated, any applicant that bids below $3 is asked to raise their bid to uh, above the uh, $3 floor. So that process, first of all, maintains the number of postings and second of all, maintains the number of applicants and also doesn't affect the wage bids of applicants who would have otherwise anyway bid above the, of the wage pool. Now, what he finds in that experiment is that that does not have a big impact on the hiring probability. What happens is that the buyers substitute towards, let's say, higher quality workers. So it's, it's really a, a redistribution finding towards workers who feel they were able to charge a higher wage anyway under that particular experiment. We you know, really try and, and build on that experiment by looking at the extent to which these other quantity margins respond to the higher hiring costs in the platform. And we find that our hiring probabilities fall a little, but you know, not too out of line with what John finds, not a, not a lot. The big impact is in the dynamics and the future engagement with the platform. And I think that that is a somewhat of a surprise because, and, you know, and, a, and a fact that we're able to see with our data, which has these repeated postings at, uh, within uh, Bayer. And, and, and that sensitivity and that the fact that the early stages of a buyer's career are so critical to their sort of life on the platform was something that wasn't necessarily anticipated. And indeed, as far as we can tell, has been perhaps missing from some of the uh, regulatory debate. You know, the, the, the volume of work on the platform turns out to be quite responsive to these um, institutional arrangements early on. Let me say th three thoughts that, that come to what you mentioned. Uh, the first one is that I don't know the earlier paper that you were referring to or the other paper that you were referring to, but I agree with you that with respect to minimum wages specifically, the negative consequences from having a minimum wage are not borne by those who get a job. Actually, they are better off because they are paid more, but by the number of jobs that disappear, right? So the quantities is the margin that creates the negative welfare effects of minimum wages when, whenever there are some. The second thing that comes to mind here is that this is not obviously a criticism of the exercise. You know, the exercise that you do will be equally valid if it was applied to a different time period. But for the specific conclusions that you reach with this data set, I think the fact that your data comes from around 2010 might be important. Because in 2010, these platforms were relatively new, which Obviously, on the first day on which the platform is set up, every buyer is a new buyer, 
right? So the potential for learning is there for, you know, 100% of the, of the buyers that we have on the first day. But as time passes, the stock of buyers become more important relative to the flow. So therefore, maybe 12 years later, these forces that are creating the negative quantity effect are today less relevant than they used to be in 2010. The third thought that I had was that that three and seven are very different numbers. Three dollars and seven and seven dollars, you know. In fact, seven dollars to me seems like incredibly high, uh, given that, and you know, I I, I uh, didn't know this number off the top of my head. I checked it just before our conversation. The median wage in India is 96 rupees, which is approximately $1.3. Obviously, these are, you know, higher skilled workers, probably than the median worker, but still, you know, imposing like a $7 minimum wage in India, that would be like a huge shock to the system. I don't know any scholar in the field of minimum wages that is advocating a minimum wage that is five times the median wage in the country, right? So that is obviously an important decision that you have taken that potentially affects the results that you're getting. Let me uh, address uh, a couple of those points. So the fact that our data comes from this early period, as you mentioned, is is something that we we want to think a little bit more about because it is a time of very fast growth on the platform, though. So as you, as you say, people are discovering it, more people are learning it works for them coming back. Important for our conclusions are that this transition to becoming experienced, um, as you mentioned. Now, if everybody's experienced, then that transition has already been passed and everybody is uh, on the platform knows exactly what they're getting. One thing that we can look at and perhaps can look at it in a little bit more detail is we can look at how in our data, those that were already experienced, how their behavior in particular changes with the counterfactuals. And that might be more of a, a representation of, of the steady state. So we, we have some information to perhaps go into that a little bit more because it speaks to the, you know, the general, uh, the external validity of outside of our, our time period. The, the other thing that I wanted to say, of course, is that um, we know that these types of markets growing fast, but from a very small base. And it will be very interesting to see if during the growth in working from home during the pandemic and the willingness uh, to engage in online work, um, we, we know that online labor markets have seen you know, a period of rapid growth over the course of the pandemic. And whether this has brought a, a whole new population into these markets is an interesting question to explore. And uh, is perhaps maybe maybe change the nature of employers' engagement uh, with bias engagements with these uh, platforms. Uh, one other thing I just wanted to mention is that what we do see is though although the job posting frequency increases with experience and the hiring probability increases with experience on the platform, what doesn't seem to change very much is the nature of work that is being posted. So it's not the case that buyers are experimenting with small, short jobs, this sort of coming in and out with short postings whilst they're learning about the platform and then switching to do more sort of stable long-term hiring relationships on the platform, perhaps one that looks more like a sort of typical labor contract. We see very little change in say the average length of job posting, um, the type of job posting that employers do when they gain experience. So we believe that this, this flexibility of being able to go in and out and, and post jobs of di with different kind of skill requirements is something that is a permanent feature of the employers on this site. Yes, it will be interesting to see if that persists through the recent growth in demand for this kind of work that's come through the pandemic. Let me also address your comment about the fact that seven dollars is a is a large minimum wage. We we understand we understand that seven dollars is is large, especially if you happen to be um, uh, living in a in a in a low wage country. The reason we did that, as I mentioned, is just because it was the prevailing minimum wage in the U.S. Uh, federal minimum wage in the U.S. at the time. One interesting counterfactual that we could have looked at, for example, is look at the degree of substitution away from if we just say imposed that minimum on workers within the U.S. and not on global workers, what impact that would have on, on substituting towards workers not based in the uh, in the US. That, there, there's a whole other set of counterfactuals around that that we could do. We thought in the absence of knowing um, very clearly what any proposed specific policy changes were, we would, we would keep it uh, general and market level and wide to illustrate the uh, overall implications of our, um, our model estimates in the counterfactual. 
you do one last exercise that is about esti uh, estimating the sustainability of online and offline work. What do you find there? Yes, well, this relates to your very first comment that setting out to make any statements about welfare in a market setting is a very ambitious uh, thing to do, especially in a market that's as, as, as novel and perhaps complex as, as an online labour market. Our main finding is that counterfactual policies that raise hiring costs, especially for new buyers in these settings, really reduce the number of jobs that are posted on the platform. Now, this obviously shrinks the, the, uh, the market and reduces gains from trade in this market. That's not so bad if the buyers simply switch offline and create more job opportunities offline and hire in perhaps more traditional settings offline um, in response to these counterfactuals. And unfortunately, our data, while very detailed about what happens on the platform, doesn't give us any information about what buyers do when they don't hire on the platform. That would be great data to um, see. And so, so we don't really have a good sense about what happens when hiring costs go up. Does it on platform? Does it create jobs offline? But uh, we do have some information that allows us to look at sort of the opposite of that question, which is when hiring costs go up offline, what happens to labour demand on the platform? And the information that we have to uh, look at that question comes from uh, the fact that in the, right in the middle of our sample period, there was a, an increase in the US federal minimum wage that um, had been previously binding for a, a, a good share of US states. And we see in the data, the states, for the buyers located in the US, the states where they are located, so we can see which buyers have been impacted by a federally mandated increase in their minimum wage in the middle of the sample. And we ask whether we see an increase in the um, use of the platform in terms of number of jobs posted or in terms of hiring probabilities on the platform differentially in those states that were affected after that federal uh, minimum wage increase. Now, arguably, this impact would have been felt only on, on those jobs that you know could possibly have been done offline at a wage that was around this minimum wage threshold anyway. So we can cut our data to look at very specific types of jobs. We can cut the data to look at new high, new buyers, experienced buyers. We can look, look at it in, in quite sort of micro detail. And however finally we cut it, we, we can't see any response in terms of a substitutability onto the platform, increased demand on the platform, differentially in the locations that saw an increase in, in the minimum wage relevant in that state. Now, we don't want to make too much of these findings. Obviously, it's um, a rather stylized representation of, uh, for, of a particular buyer's choice set, but at least we, we've been unable to find much evidence that there is a substitutability between online and offline. And, and you know, perhaps this relates to the nature of the work. You know, these are on average quite short job postings. There's a lot of variety. A given employer might post looking for people to work to do a particular tasks that require quite different skills, very well defined over a short amount of time. And it's simply not the type of work that is easy to staff via other sources of labour. Thank you, Catherine, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is The Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, directory music and logo by Aitana Blanes Iso, Episode produced by Anderson Tan.